having me. And I want to start by saying thank you, Andre and, and his team. You guys have been really amazing, like wonderful. Um, so it's great to be here. And uh, I don't think I have my clicker. Yes, thank you. Um, I want to talk about uh, what, is, what is a great product, right? We, we, I've heard some great sessions today about like how do you go about building products. But the question is, at the end of the day, how, what, how do you know when you have a great product? Like, what makes for a great product? And uh, after building products myself for a dozen years um, and some products that are used by billions of people, I still didn't quite know what makes a great product, and it was a little embarrassing. And that's when I started Products That Count. I figured if I pull some smart people together, um, maybe we can figure it out. So some of the folks who helped me in the very beginning, Dan Olson, I saw him just a minute ago here, um, and, and, a, and a bunch of others. Now we have about 100 product gurus and, and C-levels who have you know, video recordings and podcast interviews all on our website. I really encourage you to, uh, to check out the content. Everything is free. Uh, we do that because we want to create a, a stronger product culture. Now through that, um, I um, got the opportunity to write a, a book about uh, what are the, the best, uh, the rules behind the best mobile products or really behind the best products because everything is, is mobile right now. And, and through products that count, through my own experience, through interviews with you know, people from Airbnb and Uber and, and a bunch of those amazing uh, companies who, who have built successful products, um, you know, I, I learned something actually really simple, which is that the best products are um, just like our best selves, right? Our technology products are extensions of ourselves. And so when we think of great products, we have to think of like what we are when we are our best selves. And so that's what I want to talk about today. But first, you guys know the consumer journey, right? It's this really smooth yellow brick road that our customers go to and then they buy our product and everything is good and everybody lives happily ever after. Not at all. It looks a lot more like this when people are looking for a product, right? And we all know that. And our job is to go from having a customer that looks like this because they're super anxious to solve a problem to a customer that looks more like this because they found our solution, our product, and, and they love it, and, and our product solves their problem. And so we've come up with this idea as product managers of a product market fit. Everybody knows what product market fit is. Can I get a show of hands? Urgh, just half the room? Can I get a real show of hands? All right, everybody's still awake. Good. Uh, and when we reach product market fit as product managers, we're really happy because we're saying, okay, so I found a group of people who are interested in buying my product. Okay, what I'm doing is, is not wasted, right? I'm, I'm useful, my product is of value. But the problem we have then is that the minute we reach product market fit, we get new customers, we get different needs, and so we lose product market fit. And we have to reach it back again with our new audience, with our new customers. And so product market fit looks a lot more like 50 shades of product market fit. The minute we reach it, it changes. Does that seem familiar to folks here? Can I get a show of hands? Okay, thank you. Um, so the, 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 the answer to that that I found is a great product is something that is built at our image, right? A great product is just like an extension of ourselves. 
And when we're our best selves, I use the mind-body-spirit framework to describe our best self, and it applies also to great products. So starting with the body, we all want to look good, and we expect that our products are going to be exactly like that. They're going to be beautiful. But beauty is a lot more than pretty pictures, and I'll talk about what that means and how you know if you have a beautiful product or not. Then the next rule is the, the spirit rule. We all want to have meaningful lives, and we expect that our products are going to also give us meaning and that they're going to be extremely personalized. And how do you have personalized product is what I'm going to talk about. And then the last rule is the mind rule. We all want to learn. We all want to grow. That's why we're here. And we expect that our products will do the same. I hear in a lot of organizations, hey, we have a, you know, a mobile initiative or an agile transformation, and after that, it's back to business. No, that's not how it works, right? It's continuous. So starting with the, the beauty rule. The beauty rule, uh, the easiest way and the simplest way to describe it uh, and by the way, I use through my, my talk very, very simple analogies. And, you know, if you guys come away thinking like, yes, that, that's pretty straightforward, that's exactly what I want. And if you bring that to your teams, that's even better because we're all, you know, focused on methods and bugs and computers and processes. And if we just take a step back and say it's easier than we think, actually we get farther. So that body rule is like this, right? When you walk into a restaurant... Um, sorry, when, when someone walks into a restaurant and, and they're, they're beautiful, like, can, can, can you guys shout, like, what happens? Like, what happens in the restaurants? What happens? Everyone looks at them, right? That, that's, that's exactly what happens. Everyone watches. And, and so that person's beautiful. It's like there's this really strong emotional reaction. Now, if I asked you, like, what makes that person beautiful? Yes? Charm. Okay. So it's like some emotion in you. Okay. What else? Genetics? Specifically what? Oops. <laughs> some people disagree with you, Andrew. <laughs> Let's pick something else. What else? Makeup. You have to wear a lot of makeup to be beautiful. Yes? No? Okay. So... Some people will, you know, say one thing, other people will disagree and vice versa. And the truth is, that's exactly the reality. To define beauty, like, rationally is really, really hard. And so I, I looked at how, like, smart people in history have tried to define beauty. And it, it's really hard. They all, like, have different views, but there are really two camps. There's one camp, which is the scientific camp where you put people like Pythagoras, and there's also a mathematician called Burkholz, and they say beauty is a set of very rational criteria. Like, for example, you know, you, you put a string together, you divide it in regular intervals, that gives you a harmonic, that makes beautiful music. It's mathematical. Or the golden means give you, like, formulas for building beautiful buildings. Or Burkhoff, he says, you know, M, which is how he describes beauty, equals... O over C, it's order over chaos. And really it comes down to beauty is all about efficiency, right? And it's exactly the same thing on mobile. Beauty, and, and for any product, beauty is all about like how you go from point A to point B very seamlessly, right? Without wasting effort. So it's all about that user experience 
that, that you know, focus that you bring to your customer or to your user as they go through a product. And then there's another camp, which is more of an artistic camp, like Leo Tolstoy and a bunch of these folks, and they say, not at all. Beauty is about you know, what's in the eyes of the beholder. So some people were talking about charm and stuff like that. It's not at all like how you dress or if you, you know, are, have symmetrical features, your genetics. It's not about all those rational stuff. It's about how I feel when I see this piece of art, this beautiful person, and so on. So it's in the eyes of the beholder. And we have exactly the same thing with our technology. If you watch some of the videos of Steve Jobs when he's launching the first iPhone, granted it's, you know, in California where everybody claps for no reason, but everybody stands up and claps, and you see some people tearing up when he pulls up an iPhone from his pocket. And that's really the reaction we have with our mobile products, right? We often, you know, when we experience uh, Uber or Facebook for the first time, it's really magical, right? So there's this really strong emotional reaction. Now, that's the definition of, of beauty when it comes to technology. Really strong efficiency where nothing is wasted, and then um, this, this you know, emotional reaction. Now, when you're building your products, how you apply that is with what I, you know, two tests. The first one is the thumb test. So if you can have some, some, someone, right, a customer, go through your use case or use your product just with a simple you know, thumb on a mobile phone, on a watch, any, any sort of you know, interface, and they, and they go through simply, uh, you know, uh, simply uh, through the steps, then you can tell that you, know, you pass that thumb test, and that's a very efficient way that you complete a, a, a use case and, and go and, and use the product. So that's the efficiency test. And then the second test is, um, I call that the, the mom test. And the, the reason I call that the mom test is because my mom is, uh, is not from uh, the tech world. And so when I describe to her what I do, most of the time she'll say, uh -huh, oh, that's great, I'm really proud of you, that's awesome. And, and then I, you know, there's something that I'll say that she actually understands. And her reaction will be, oh! Oh, that's what you do. Oh, yes, I totally get it. This is really cool. And this is how it applies here and there. Right? And you see that, that emotional reaction that she has. It's, she cannot fake it. Right? Like There's a, a connection that keeps our consciousness. So if you don't pick my mom every time, right? but if you can find a user of your product that you know, can have this reaction when they use your product, this emotional like, oh, I get it. Oh, this is cool. This is simple. Then you have a beautiful product. Now, it sounds really simple. Uh, try applying that to your own product. Try having your engineers, your designers, ask you know, people in, in their circles to use those roles to build products, and you'll see it makes a gigantic difference. Now, that's sort of the outward experience of beauty. Now, how do you actually build that experience under the hood? Um, I talk about that a lot in my, in my book. Um, but in a nutshell, this is what happens, right? You have two sets of design elements to build beautiful products. Some help you focus, the, the more rational ones, and some help you expand. So the one that help you focus, if you follow a journey of a customer, there are five of them, right? You start 
you know, hearing about a product, you're going to download it or, or, or start using it, there's this onboarding experience. You have to make sure that onboarding experience is extremely smooth, that you offer value before you ask for value. You show the magic of your product immediately. Now your customer has onboarded, and then they have to execute what they came here to do, right? So you have to make sure that they go through this very simple single task, right? Like, I'm here, I'm working with my customer to make sure that they are actually going to buy this product easily. And they go through that single task, and once they complete it, then you can start showing them other things that your product does. So you show them, like, the navigation, right? You can do this, which you just did, but there are other things you can do, more value you can get out of my product. So your navigation becomes really super important at that time and very simple navigation. And once you navigate, so I put performance right here because when I talk to folks who are building mobile products, that's usually when their app crashes, right? So they're onboarding a customer, going through one purchase, showing them like, oh, here are all the other things you can do, and boom, <laughs> the app crashes. And that's a shame because that's how you get really bad reviews and that's how it really affects your product. So performance is really important. It's actually really at the foundation of a, a great product. And then another question I get often is, oh, if I want to build a great product, I have to have like really, really special gestures. So we're here, product people, like, let me ask you, uh, what does this gesture do? Uh, louder, please. Not good. Thumb down. Nope. Wrong answer. Another answer. Dislike. Nope. Wrong answer. What else? Poor water. Yes, yes. Poor beer also. Um, nope. Okay, so, so my point being, uh, this is a pretty hard to understand gesture, right? Well, actually, if I tell you what it is, it's zoom in, zoom out, right? It's actually pretty simple if you get used to it, right? You think about it, oops. Zoom in, zoom out. And you guys are like, no, I see, like, this is really not easy to understand. Well, okay, that's exactly how your gesture is going to be perceived by your users. Um, you know, people tell me, like, oh, but come on, like, swiping right, swiping left on Tinder, or double tap on Instagram, and so on and so forth. Nope. Like, new gestures are really, really hard to understand. And by the way, this gesture was heavily promoted by Nokia back when it had 40% market share as a zoom in, zoom out. And it competed against a you know, two-finger zoom in, zoom out, which now we find obvious. But honestly, like, if you think about it, like, is this more obvious than this? <laughs> okay, you're right, whatever. <laughs> um, anyway, so that's my point on gesture. Now, these elements are helping you bring, product, bring focus when you're building products. Now, some elements allow you to expand the, the you know, richness of your products, and push and pull are, are elements that are basically uh, permissions that you ask your users to give you to you know, access your address book or uh, receive push notifications and so on and so forth. And the rule here is when do I need to get that information and when do I need to ask for that permission? And you do that 
as early as possible in your you know, product journey or as late as possible. And I'll give you an example using WhatsApp. So WhatsApp is um, your mobile messaging. So very, very hard to not have push notifications enabled when you want to do real-time messaging, right? If I'm sending you a message, you want to know exactly immediately when, you're, you know, when, when you receive it. I want to know when you received it. It has to be real-time, otherwise there's no value. So push notification is really, really critical for a, a service like WhatsApp. And therefore, you get permission to send push notifications as early as possible. In fact, on WhatsApp, it's the first thing you ask before somebody signs up or anything. Do you want to receive push notifications? Anyone knows what happens when you say no? You cannot use the product. Like, sorry. <laughs> if you want to use WhatsApp, you have to enable push notifications. Otherwise, it will not be a, a product experience that's beautiful enough. Now, if I want to send you a picture on WhatsApp, actually, they're ask, you know, the, WhatsApp asks you for the permission to send you notifications as late as possible. The reason being, it's not mission critical in the service. We can do many things on WhatsApp without me sending you a picture. But if I want to send you a picture, I'm already in the process of sending you a picture, and I'm being asked, do you want to allow access to your camera? Well, well of course, because I want to send her a picture, right? So as late as possible. We already talked about that. The next rule is the, the spirit rule, right? We all want meaningful lives. And so, you know, the, the meaning, a lot of meaning in our lives we get from our relationships. I, uh, I got married at the beginning of the year. When I first met my now husband, we were spending all of our time together. We were, you know, amazed how we could, you know, read each other's mind and completely understand each other. And he knew exactly what I wanted without me having to say it and so on and so forth. And then... We started introducing one another to our friends and our families and our colleagues. And, and then we, became to, we started to have a, a love-hate relationship. Because when you start to you know, intermingle those relationships in your environment, you know, maybe your colleagues don't like your you know, significant other, or maybe your family doesn't like them, and so on and so forth. And it becomes more complicated. And it's exactly the same thing with our mobile products and our products in general, right? When we first start using them, we're like completely into them, right? Like we're, you know, always in contact with them, always using them. And then when we find ourselves in groups or in, you know, settings or here, we don't really have the right rules or, or, or good rules to interact with them. And, and when we build product, we need to remember that because that's also going to drive the success of our product, how well we understand um, how people use our product. So the first aspect, right, like those products, like we expect, we expect that they're going to understand us. It's really like how do, they, how do they go about understanding us, right? Like how do they know things that we don't even know about ourselves? And when I think of, you know, the, the essence of what, what we all are building now, which is mobile products, the essence of mobility, what, what, what products, mobile products know now about us is two things that they never could, know, could, know, could have known before. The first thing is um, they know our, uh, our real identity. And the second thing is they know our context. Our real identity is, you know, it's not like me as in a persona watching a billboard or 
me as an avatar searching on the internet. It's me as in me SC. They know my, my heart, uh, my, you know, my health data. They know a lot of things about um, my friends, my, my calendar, and so on and so forth. Um, and, and then my contacts, they know exactly where I am, right? I, I open my phone today, and when I do a search on Google or when I look on Uber, it shows me like Portuguese language. I don't speak Portuguese. I didn't enter that setting. It just like understands where I am. So if you think of how you can personalize your product based on these two things, like would my product be unique, be personalized, be differentiated if I used someone's identity uh, and their context, or how would my product be you know, more personalized if I did that? Uh, that will help you build more personalized and more meaningful products. And I'll give you a very concrete way you can do that. If you list all of the permissions that are available on all the platforms you're building your products, whether it's web or uh, Android, iOS, uh, you know, and so on and so forth, you list all of them and you ask yourself, if I had this permission, how would I use it in a unique way to build my product? And if you can do that, then ask for the permission you know, as early or as late as possible. And if you don't think it's valuable for your own product, then you don't need it. But it's a very systematic way that all of a sudden you can build a product that you know, is going to be highly personalized. Now, um, as we personalize products, and this is a much more relevant topic here than it is uh, where, where I'm from in Silicon Valley, we're, start, we're starting to capture a lot of data. And that information, you know, we as individuals don't like when people have that info about us, right? So we're talking about security and privacy. And the question here is, like, how do we as product managers handle that? Now, there are actually um, different reasons you want to capture data. And there's different types of people or, or entities who use your data, and some are better than others. So the first group of people who can use your data are other people. Now, now, we're very clear on that. We, we're very clear that as a society, we, we don't like identity theft. And so we don't want other people using our data. That's a very clear answer. As product manager, we understand how, what we need to do to make sure that doesn't happen. Now, the second entity that can use our data are corporations. And we're also very, very clear on that as, as a society that we actually like it when corporations use our data. And I know it's not a very popular thing to say because, you know, we, we, we don't think it's, like, politically correct to say that, but it's actually true. We would rather have a corporation use our data and take advantage of a free service that's personalized than pay for the service and have, you know, advertising or targeting not be personalized. So generally speaking, even though we do not like hearing that, having a corporation use our data is fine. And as product managers, this has some consequences as well. And then the last entity that can use our data is government. And with government, we have really, really mixed feelings because we know from history that it's usually not a great thing. But when we see how governments operate today, there's probably a lot of potential for improvement from using technology products, right? If you think about 
how government manages you know, terrorist threats, they are looking at what kind of criteria today. They are looking at your nationality, your race, your gender, really, really arbitrary criteria, much less reliable than are you calling terrorists? Are you hanging out with terrorists? Right? And so if you think of what our products could do to improve government, there are some good things, but we know that we have to be really careful. So as product managers, we need to think about like, what that means for our products. Now, the last rule that I want to talk about for, for what makes a great product is the mind rule, right? And the mind rule is really about how we get good at things. It's really how we get good at our hobbies, how we get good at our jobs. There's practice, right? It's like practice makes perfect. And so we have all these methodologies which we call growth hacking or A-B testing or, or lean product and, and, and all these methodologies that are basically saying one thing. There's... There's a model to growth, which is define your success metric, put everything that leads towards that metric into a funnel, and then optimize that conversion funnel. And I'm sure you guys are all familiar with that. And, uh, and if you do that, and that's already like a lot in your organization, but if you do that, at some point you get diminishing returns. And the, 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 the way to get outside of those diminishing returns is to you know, I, I say, think outside the funnel. So say, like, what if I told you there is no funnel? How do you think outside of that A-B testing and optimization funnel? So are, are there some engineers in the room? Yes? Okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rely on you. I'm going to ask you, like, what does a perfect funnel look like? A cylinder, right? It converts perfectly. And how wide is that perfect funnel? Infinite, okay. And how deep is it? Flat, right? So it's like the horizon. Right? It's an infinite flat funnel, a flat, flat uh, plane. So if you think of your product and your own conversion funnel this way, then you can actually, you know, grow your product really exponentially, right? If you think, I want everybody immediately to use my product. Now, I see all of you are looking at me in disbelief, saying, okay, thank you, get off the stage, I don't understand. Actually, this is the first tool, right? The first tool is how do you really reduce the depth of your funnel? Like, how do you basically shortcut all the different steps you need, to, you need your users to go through in order to make your funnel as thin as possible? So here's an example. You go on Amazon. And if you try to buy my book, immediately after, it will show you three books that you can buy on the same topic, right? The business of mobile, building great products, and so on. So if you're a bookworm like myself, instead of buying one book, you buy four books. That is an example of a flat funnel, right? It's just like no extra step, no need to go through the search process, no need to go through the buying process, just buy three more books, right? If you apply that to your own product, I'll tell you what can happen because I applied that to one of my products when I was at Trulia, which is a big real estate marketplace. We multiplied our revenue by three just because of that. Other ways you can shortcut, you know, you can use Apple Pay and, and all sorts of other things. And you still need to A-B test a lot. You still need to say, 
Am I going to show three books or four or five? What am I going to show at the beginning? Do I show this before they purchase, right after they purchase? There's a lot of possible iteration, but the iteration itself is a 20% increment. What matters is that shortcut, which is a 3x increment. And so that makes your funnel flat. Now, what makes your um, funnel infinite, and this will be my, my last point, what makes your funnel infinite is what I call a hook. So again, like with the example of real estate, when you buy a house in the U.S. on average, it takes you, uh, you buy one house and then you buy your next house five years later on average. So if you're a real estate marketplace, you get one customer, maybe they buy from you, and then you say, okay, well, see you in five years. Not a very good business. But let me see a show of hands. Who wants to know the value of the house they live in? Okay, a few people. What about the value of their boss's house? Or their ex-girlfriend? Yes. So, and it's not just today you want to know that. It's last week, and maybe build a projection for the future, and if it goes up, maybe it makes you happy or it makes you angry. And you can, you know, basically create a whole story around the hypothetical value of a house. Now, if you can do that in the real estate market, you can probably come up with something similar for your product in any market, right? What is that hook that is going to make everybody want to think about like your product all the time so that when they're ready to use it and buy it, you're right here, right? What is that, you know, in, in the U.S., uh, the service that's most famous for that is Zillow, and it has a Zestimate. What is that slightly inflated value of a house that makes everybody want to check it out all the time? All right, so thank you very much, and I'll see you at the reception. <laughs>